Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the Tapping Up podcast with myself, Daryl, and as always, Ian. How are you doing, Ian? Very good, thank you. How are you with your three and a half day week? Been a nice little easy one for you while some of us have been grinding it out? Yeah, I went to see Bastille yesterday, so that was quite fun. Um, bit sweaty, bit crowded. I don't know what I was expecting really at a concert, but you know, it's uh, we're an anniversary present, so I enjoyed it nonetheless. You know me, mate. I literally couldn't name you one single song from them, and it's not nineties gangster rap or prodigy or pendulum, so I'm not interested. Would you have gone to see if it were one of those in yeah, hundred percent? I've already seen. Well, I've seen all of them already. I've, apart from Snoop, which it cancelled on me three times. I've seen Pendulum and I've seen Prodigy before uh, Keith died, so I can die happy that my favourite bands I've seen. But um, yeah, interesting that you said it was at uh, Millennium Square rather than in any of the normal kind of uh, concert venues in Leeds. Uh, usually, either the O2 or the Leeds Arena. So that's a, that seems a new thing. I've not. Don't think I've heard of a concert there before. I think they have done, but I think it's few and far between because it's only obviously summer orientated. I always find as well, and I don't know if this is a bit worrying to say out loud, but whenever I'm in town on a night out and I've had like a couple of beers, I feel like I want to stay out for rest at night and just get absolutely off my head. Whereas I, I had to go yeah, home. Yeah, I think, I think that's a sign of an alcoholic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. I could be wrong. I'm, I'm no psychologist, but... That's definitely the trait of an alcoholic. It was just when the taste of the first cause light hit my lips. There was just something about it. And I was like, you drove, I didn't you? No. <laughs> you're allowed to. Any- Come on. Come anyway, on, anyway, straight on to MMA for this week. Um, just because it is the most recent news and probably the most shocking of any of the topics that we're going to cover Jamahal Hill has relinquished the UFC title after suffering a ruptured Achilles in a basketball game with some other UFC members. Um, He's heading for surgery after suffering that ruptured Achilles tendon. As a result, he's relinquishing his UFC light heavyweight title. He made the announcement via his YouTube channel late yesterday, so Thursday night. Uh, He's got to have surgery on Monday. And typically, the recovery time, from what I've seen, runs from approximately between 8 and 12 months, but depending on his rehabilitation, could be significantly longer. This throws this division um, quite up in the air at the moment. Dana must be seething. If you, if you suffer an injury training, it's one thing. If you do something, I mean, that might even be, I don't know this for sure, and I'm speaking out my ass here, but... They may well have a clause in their contract. I know the only um, uh, equivalent I could give you, and I know this is is true in uh, the NFL. So they have contracts that basically prohibit them from doing anything else that could injure them. And if they do get injured, uh, and I know this, I'm not sure this is 100% accurate because I saw this on Ballers, the Rocks TV show, but a guy injures his knee paintballing and they cut him. Because they're like, you didn't, inj- you, you, you didn't injure yourself training. You shouldn't have been doing that. You cut. So I, I, I would not be surprised if um, there's something like that in the US, in, in there. He's, he's definitely not going to get cut. And I understand from our quick chat there that you said Dana's going to come out and support him. But I'll be honest with you. I fucking guarantee Dana's been like, we'll support you. 
but you're fucking relinquishing that fucking title. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one, I suppose, in that it's basketball, isn't it? So it's not exactly one of the most strenuous of sports, but I don't know what he's done while he's been playing basketball. I assume he's just sort of tripped or, you know, he's got a bit too physical, but it's not like he's been going out playing rugby league and getting smashed all over the park, is it? But still, I completely agree. Basketball, you'd be surprised. There's there's an incredible amount of strain on your ankles and knees in particular in terms of the moves, particularly someone like Hill. He's a big guy. I'm sure he can probably dunk. You know, you get a lot of ankle and knee injuries playing basketball, and it is definitely not an overly sensible thing to do if you're a professional cage fighter. But it is what it is. Um, I mean, the, the the big question, I suppose, and where you're right, it completely throws uh, the division into chaos. The logical explanation or logical next move would be to uh, in a, I think it's is it in two UFCs, you've got Blahovic Poetang, put that for the title, given that um, Pereira is a former middleweight title, uh, Blahovic is a former light heavyweight champion, give that for an interim, especially if he's going to be out for 12 months. But you've got to factor into that the fact that Dana had already given Prohaska the next shot. Now, again, Prohaska had a long term injury. I'm not sure on a timeline for his return, but if, if if you're asking me and I'm Dana to make the best of a bad situation, I would go Blahovic Pahera for the interim title. Winner fights Prohaska. Winner of that gets Hill when he's back. Because it's it's two nine one, isn't it? That they're fighting Blahovic. Is it as close uh, as that? Pahera. I didn't know. If yeah, it's, it's... is it as close as that? Is it? End of this month, yeah, it's thirtieth of July. So I mean, that's going to be a fucking. That. that is going to be an amazing fight and very dangerous for Pereira because people sleep on Blahovic, and in the last couple of fights, given how easily Izzy took down Pereira, we know that's his weakness. Blahovic fucked up Izzy on the ground when Izzy went up. So if there is ever the most obvious game plan in the world, Blahovic is just going to be all over. Potang like a rash, but they've both got ridiculous power. If that stays on the feet, I can guarantee you one of them's getting knocked out. But I, I have to be honest, I, as much as I love Pereira, this is a bad matchup for him, I think. I think he gets taken down, pounded out. The division's, I don't want to say cursed, but it's, it's been in a bit of a mess for a while, hasn't it? Because you obviously had the unfortunate injury to Prahaska. You then had the title, the vacant title on the line at 282 between Blahovic and Ankalev, I think it was, uh, which ended which in the majority draw. Draw, Yeah, and then you've got, obviously Hill takes it from Teixeira um, when we obviously predicted that absolutely spot on. You keep saying we. I felt you, but I, I, whilst I wasn't fully saying that, you, I've noticed at least, at least three podcasts you've been like, we got that one wrong. You got that one wrong, and I said you shouldn't sleep on Hill. So I feel like that just just to clear things up there, I wasn't fully in, on to Techshare side there. I feel like if I, I I'm going to go back that. and listen to that episode, and if you Dude. have said anything along the lines of, "Yeah, I think uh, Techshare will take this," then end of that, and I win. 
Uh, but but play that you it. can you can quote that and play it on the podcast, and I will give you a incredibly apologetic apology if that is the case. But I will tell you now that is not what I said. Back onto the subject, but um, <laughs> I, I think you're right. I think that the most logical step for this would be to put the interim title on the line on at two nine one, and then have the winner fight um, Prasga when he comes back, and then. As you say, have the winner of that fighting Hill. It just it seems the logical step there, and then obviously you can settle things going forward. But it also fits in with the timeline because I'm not yeah. sure Prohaska's ready yet to get back. I think he's closing in, but that would give you a t- an interim title fight. You've probably got maybe three or four months left for Prohaska to then get fit, and then after that fight, that let's say that's two or three months away. Then you've got another three or four months, which fits in with your eight months recovery for Hill. So just timeline wise, everything there lines up and the UFC don't usually miss an opportunity. Again, they're very shrewd like that. So I'm going to call it now. That's what happens. Um, And I would be shocked if it doesn't happen in that manner would be my view. UFC 290 weekend just gone. Uh, A very good event. For the first time in quite a while, it was enjoyable for a number of different fights. I think five of the fights were were quite entertaining at the very least. Um, my boy, Volk, obviously wins in the, the main event. Do you want to start there? Okay, I, I, I'd got it in reverse. If you just give me a second to go down my notes, because I'd got it in reverse order. But um, yeah, and I mean, he won. Pretty easily, to be honest, didn't he? I mean, I've got a, a bit of a, a round-by-round round breakdown for you. Uh, again, uh, just because I know people love my in-depth details. Get comfortable. I won't talk for seven minutes this time. Uh, round one, you could see that uh, Rodriguez is by far and away the taller man. Um, Volk immediately fucking with his head, switching stances from southpaw to, 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 to standard, which I, I, I liked. You could see he was very cautious of uh, Rodriguez's kicks and staying on the outside. And he did it. He threw a couple of kicks. And I tell you what, if there's a quicker kicker in the UFC, I can't remember seeing him. Those quicks from Rod- those kicks from Rod- Rodriguez come so quick, like lightning. Does a question mark kick, spinning back kick. Like he he has got some some of the best kicking skills. But walk uh, Volk was just walking him down, keeping his very sensibly walking him down but staying out of range. Volk then takes him down and then you're talking, you're in Volk's world there. Ground control, he's dropping elbows. Uh, Rodriguez does get up, but a Volk immediately takes him back down and starts raining blows down. Uh, Volk ended up with three out of four takedown efforts in the first four minutes. Personally, I scored it 9-10 Volk. Second round, Rodriguez opens with uh, a nice kick again. Volk instantly clinches him and puts him against the cage and takes him down again. Um, And a couple more times. By this point, he's five of eight on takedowns. Uh, Again, Rodriguez, if there's anything more soul-destroying in an MMA fight than someone getting up when they've been taken down and then immediately taken back down, just absolutely crushes your soul. And Volk's just all over him like a rash, smashing him up on the ground. And you can start to see that uh, Rodriguez, not only was he bleeding from his eye, but it looked like Volk had caught him on his ear. So I think he must have had a cauliflower ear that had ruptured as well. Another easy 10-9 Volk ground for me. 
Third round, um, Rodriguez got quite a, a strong warning from Herb Dean at the start of the round for grabbing the cage uh, and, and for something else that I couldn't quite hear, but he, he got quite a stern telling off. Um, it was a little bit slower considering the pace of the first two rounds and uh, Rodriguez landed a big kick and clearly the the, the um, advice in between the rounds was saying, look, your kicks are your best weapon, use them more. And you could see he was starting to use his kicks far more. Um, I can't help but wonder if this came in because then there was a timeout for an accidental headbutt from Volk. He, he caught him definitely unintentionally moving up, but an unintentional headbutt is going to fuck you up. That's like a, a, a full punch. And there's a few, a few minute break. Every Rodriguez says he's fine to continue, but then bam, it's an absolutely massive right from Volk. Volk dumps him down, starts smashing him up. Immediately, Rodriguez covers up. Bang. Over. Done. Your man continues his impressive run, remains unbeaten at featherweight. Um, and um, I'll be honest with you, the only note I put on that, he was possibly losing the round, I thought, when he did that. Because Rodriguez was using those kicks and landing more blows during that round. Don't matter though, does it? Doesn't can be losing the round as long as you win it at the end. No, he's just, he's a different beast at this level. I, I don't think that there's anyone at featherweight that can compete with him. I don't think the talk of Tapura coming forward and potentially challenging for it is going to be a significant enough challenge for him. I think you would expect Islam is going to be the one that he wants. Um, he did mention, I don't know if you heard his comments slightly after, that he would need surgery. Um, he said pretty following. minor surgery though, didn't he? He said he'd he be did. back pretty quickly. But yeah, I did hear that. Was it shul- shoulder? Was, was that right? Yeah, shoulder injury? I think so. He he went on to clarify his comments in the uh, post-match conference where he essentially said, look, I don't mean to scare everyone when I say that. Uh, we're going to try and get this surgery done very, very quickly. It's only a minor injury. So he's going to be on out for a little bit of a spell. Don't think it'd be anywhere near as, as long to disrupt the division or that it's going to have the title taken off or anything like that. I still think he'll want Islam, but while he's out or whatever the spell might be, I think it would make perfect sense for Rodriguez to take on Tapura for an interim or just no, no, just just in general. I I I wouldn't disagree, and it will be a good litmus test for how far Tapura is coming. Um, My own view is it's far too early for Tapura, and he's bitten off way more than he can chew. Looks a real prospect, and really like him, but he's going to get fed to the wolves if he tries to take on Volk at this stage. From what I read, Volk, uh, in a later interview, basically said there was three options for him that he was looking at next. So you got going up a weight and rematching for Islam, which is what he said he wants the most. And given how close that was, um, that would be a great fight. You've got staying at featherweight. You've got Tapura is the next obvious um, contender, the, the run that he's on. What I did also see, which was one that came out of the blue and I thought was quite an intriguing one and would be a good matchup, I'd like to see that fight, was he also said he'd be quite happy to take on Sterling if Sterling fancied moving up from Bantamweight to try and become a champ champ. So they were the three options that were outlined for him. I think he'll go for Islam myself. He wants that second title, doesn't he? He wants to be a champ champ. 
Uh, just intriguingly, just before we move on to the next one, we obviously discussed it last week with regards to pound for pound. Did you see who the UFC's new number one pound for pound ranked fighter is? You say it with such a smug little fucking grin. See, <laughs> you say that. I did a little Twitter Twitter poll, didn't I? Thinking I'll be proved right here. Everybody knows John Jones is the top. You were right again. I'm going to throw it out and give it to you that. The only one I will say as a really desperate attempt not to be shown up by you was if you saw that was MMA fighting and the UFC's rankings. You're correct that he went up to number one. Sherdog kept it exactly the same as I called it, which is Jones number one, Islam number two, Volk number three. But would you still say that's now? I mean, if I'm going to be as well as genuine and as fair as possible here, technically, he is number one, is Volk. He is joint top with John Jones, is how they've done it. So they're both number one. Okay. Explain that to me. How does that Bullshit. work? You've got, you've got, you've got a cool one or the other. That's that feels. But I, I, it was incredibly professive performance. You have to take that into account. Um, but we've gone over it again. I don't want to go over a ground. The whole point of pound for pound is to effectively say if these guys were the same size, who would win? And you, as much as I love Volk, I know you love him more, and I can see you again. Whilst I can't see below your head, you sat there with a semi even talking about him. I'm telling you now, if they were the same size, John's Jones fucks up bulk. We know full well that those rankings will change as well if and when Jones wins his next fight. So it's not not really in doubt, is that? Um, But we digress. Um, Next one, how do you want to go on to it? Pantoja? Pantoja, yep. So um, again, I've got... um, this was a strange one for me, and I say strange in the scoring wise. So, I mean, again, I've got some more, slightly more minor notes. So, again, I, I won't bore you. Uh, round one, clinching straight away. Tentative start from both of them. Big shot from Moreno. Um, Pantoja drops Moreno, and he's, he gets on top and starts dropping elbows straight away. Um, gets his back and can't really finish. 10-9 Pantoja for me, first round. Yeah, agreed. Second round, Patoja's coming out swinging hard. Uh, another good shot from Moreno and a good jab. All of a sudden, it sort of descends from into a bit of a slugfest, and they're both throwing back and forth. Moreno takes him down and gets his back, and he's looking for a rear naked choke. Uh, Patoja's a super high-level black belt, but gets out of trouble, but he's still on his back. Very good job from and good jabs from Moreno. And it seems to me you can see Patoja starting to tire. I had that 10-9 Moreno. Yeah, agreed. agreed. Round three, Patoja gets his back and takes him down quickly, looking for the rear naked choke. And again, he's a super high-level black belt, so that is not a good position to be in. They're both bloodied up by this one. This is a very close round, I've got to be honest. You've got then a head kick from Moreno. Moreno gets him down and starts dropping some elbows, but Patoja gets back up. I went 10-9 Patoja. Round four, so good body shot from Moreno to start, and but Patoja takes him down again in that kind of survival mode, feeling like he probably needs to. Moreno gets straight back up and they're clinched against the cage, but then Patoja gets him back down and basically holds him down for the rest of the round. 9-10 Patoja for me. Uh, round five, 
good cornering, I'm going to say, by this point, because I feel that um, uh, Moreno's round are basically saying, you're fucked here. You need a KO. You, you, you know, you are probably 3-1 down, if not, you know, um, maybe not that, but, you know, uh, it's, you're going to need to knock him out. Patoja's corner are telling him, look, you've won three of the four rounds. Just don't get finished. Both look very, very tired by this point. Moreno starts going for it and slinging some shots. Insane durability from Patoja because he takes some big shots and he's and he's never been finished in a fight, which tells you about his durability. Patoja with a takedown right near the end of the... Again, round stealing, as I call it. More ground control. Gets his back in a body lock. And then it's finished. 10-9 Patoja for me. So I actually had it 4-1 Patoja. 49-46 was how I scored that fight. Is there In... any argument for a 49-46 Moreno? No, because that's <laughs> what I, I've got here. That's where, rarely, I would say, and I think we're pretty good with these, that we're pretty unbiased. We... 7 out of 10 times, we call the judges' scorecards pretty right. But I've got them written down here. Someone gave it 49-46 Moreno, who should be fired as a judge, because <laughs> that was insane. Uh, the other two gave it 48-47 Patoja. So um, takes it as a decision. I thought it was far more obvious than that. But So it's one of the only ones that I would say my scoring differed significantly from the judges. Um, but I thought that was, say, 4-1 easy for Patoja for me. I could see that where the 3-2 came from to Patoja. I can't see any substantial argument for Moreno winning it. I don't understand certainly where the 49-46 comes from. Round three was the close one. Round For the 3-2, yeah. round three was the one that I, w- I would guess. I haven't seen the exact scorecards, but that would have been the one that would have been given to Moreno to make it 3-2. Um, the only thing, and I think we've both got to hold our hands up here, uh, that we had failed to mention uh, when we did our breakdown last uh, week, Patoja actually already holds two wins, or did, it's now three, over Moreno before the fight. One was in the UFC um, uh, contender series, Latin uh, version. So it wasn't an official UFC fight. It was a uh, exhibition, as they call it, and one in the UFC. And neither of us brought that up. And we've often talked about how sometimes someone can just have somebody's number. And I can't help but feel Patoja just has his number in the same way that Moreno, ironically, probably had Figgy's number. Yeah, I've got a little note here that just basically says Ian hasn't done homework and should have called this. Oh, it's, it's all on me, is it? This one, but uh, well, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we should. We but it was definitely a neglection of uh, research on my part that we didn't mention that. But so we got just a new. On, just on that, sorry, just on that. Did you say that his first fight or first win against Moreno? What, what did you say it was? Well, I read it was classed as an exhibition fight because it was in the Dana White Contender Series. So it wasn't an official UFC victory because it wasn't in an official UFC event. So he'd only beaten him. Yeah, I've got it as the Ultimate Fighter 24. So is that the same? Is the Contender Series? Because I thought Ultimate Fighter was different. You confused me here. 
So what are the two? I th- wasn't the ultimate fighter the one victory and one fight was, I, I think that's the one that he'd beaten him in, in the UFC event. And then there was another one that was not official in inverted commas that was on Dana White's contender series, or it may have been, maybe I've misread that may have been tough, but either I've... way, one of them was not a full UFC event is my understanding. Uh, I would, I'll leave that with you. I will disagree with you. I think the other one is UFC Fight Night 129, which was back in 2018. If you've done your research, I won't disagree. But what I will do then is have a sh- uh, have slagging off whoever's uh, MMA fighting where I read that, where it said it was basically one nil officially and one of them was a kind of not an official UFC event. But either way, he won it's he three nil. twice. It's yeah. three nil. Um, you know, whether we class it as, as not whatever you want, you want to call that. So uh new featherweight title. What it does do for me is it probably puts Figgy back in the title picture, uh, having, you know, a tough work back given his quadrilogy uh, with uh, Moreno and looking that he pretty lopsided. The very obvious next fight would then probably be an all Brazilian affair of uh, Patoja Figgy for the next match, I would guess. Most intriguing fight, and certainly for the implications moving forward on the card for me, um, another one that we called wrong. Can I say that we called this one wrong? Or we can. Said, yeah, no, we, we, can. we called it wrong. Uh, Whitaker lost against Duplicis, uh by KO or TKO in round two. So, yeah, again, my little brief notes. Uh, I mean, the first thing I noticed, I thought as they started, Duplicis is fucking huge for a middleweight. He's like Alex Pereira big for that size. He looked a different weight class to Whitaker when they came out. Uh, he comes out throwing some kicks. Whitaker's looking relatively tentative. Uh, there's a couple of big shots from Whitaker to start off with in the takedown. Um, uh, Duplessis reverses that and takes him down. Starts looking for a Dars choke, which I'm always a big fan of because it's a very, very difficult choke to get it, uh, um, on and land. Starts to ground and pound. And closes out for the last minute. He's just raining blows down. 10-9 Duplicis for me the first round. Yeah. Big shots from DTP coming straight out in the second round. Drops him pretty quickly. And Whitaker looks in trouble. Then he's got him against the cage. I don't know, again, how much he watched it in sort of slow-mo. Hits him with an absolutely monstrous body shot that literally folds him before he just starts powering him down. Uh, and raining down the hammer fist to win it. Referee calls in uh, for the win. 6-0 and now for Duplicis in the middleweight division and definitely throws himself up as the obvious next title contender for, for Izzy. Um, that, Izzy I, mean, that's, I was going to say, that's not even the most intriguing part of the fight and the most interesting part of the fight, is it? Well, Izzy, Izzy staring him down in the outside the cage, isn't he? Again, I think Dana would probably be the first to admit this probably wasn't his finest hour in allowing Izzy to come into the cage in that situation. I, I'd, I'd seen many, many chats that Izzy was really pissed, which may explain some of the behaviour and particular language, shall we say, that he used. But he starts mouthing off to Duplicis and he is dropping N-bombs like they're going out of fashion. And I'm sat there thinking... This is live TV 
what on earth is Dana thinking about this? And has Izzy lost his mind? Was my view. Yeah, I mean, we had a bit of a discussion about this. It's not something that I think we should discuss too much on the podcast because of the the racial implication in it. But it does feel as though if someone comes out and says this type of chat and this type of language in any other function other than what's happened on this this night, let's say a footballer comes and does it, for example, or a rugby player does it live on TV, they're shipped out immediately, they're getting fined, they're potentially career implications on it, just getting sort of brushed under the carpet. And I think Dana White came out when questioned on it and someone, I think it was a, just a, a journalist, said, look, you can't, you can't surely get away with this. And it was like, look, it's just a fight. Uh, he's in the heat of the moment. What do you expect to happen? But Not only that, but he's like, what's racial about it? Yeah. What are you talking about, Dana? And the only thing I would say, again, the less we say about this is, is probably the better from a safety point of view. All I would say Imagine those roles were reversed and Duplicis had been the one using that language to Izzy. He would be cancelled. He'd been kicked out of the UFC, never fought again, and all hell would have broken loose. And I still keep keep thinking, when's this going to blow up and people are going to be like, this is unacceptable, it can't be said. And it's gone a week now and it seems to have been brushed under the carpet and Izzy's got away with it. So... And rightfully so, by the way, if it had been roles reversed and Duplicis had come out and said that, I wouldn't want to see him again. I'd want him shipped out immediately and, and never to be seen in the UFC. So it, I don't it's think, a... though, that, that I, th- I think that's double standards, if, if I'm being honest. I don't think that you can say that it's acceptable for Izzy to say it, but it's not for Duplicis. I think all the way around, it was completely out of order. Agreed. That word should never be said ever, let alone on live TV and the number of times. But it's somehow been brushed under the carpet. But what it does do, if, if we're looking at the, there's no positive side to racial slurs being used. What it does do is certainly build more for the fight. And that that is, you can tell Duplicis has really got under his skin. Izzy is seething. And, and what that shows me in some ways is Izzy could make a mistake. That's how, that, that Duplicis has almost done a conner on him. The mental warfare aspect and absolutely fucking living rent free in his head at the moment and you know making him you know angry that's when you make mistakes so that is going to be a super interesting fight what i did see which seemed a particularly quick turnaround but given that duplicis didn't take much damage i even read that there was talk that izzy izzy duplicis could be made in nine weeks so i don't know what numbered event that would land at that might be like 292 maybe but um, I think that that that, as you say, all it does is build the intrigue for that fight. And as you say, I definitely think Duplicis has got the mental advantage that, from a mental warfare aspect, he is all up inside Izzy's head. It's it's really personal. I think it's the most personal rivalry that that's currently set in the UFC at the moment. And for those who don't know, a very quick overview of it. Essentially, Adesanya is from Nigeria but lives and trains in New Zealand. Um, there are two other fellow Africans in the UFC, as in, or were in the UFC, who were former world champions. That was Nganu and, and Usman. Um, Duplessis has essentially said he would be the promotion's first true African champion, which Adesanya has taken exception to and leading to the X-rated speech. He's also posted stuff on Twitter. 
Um, essentially, Duplicis has said, I think the, the, the exact quote was something along the lines of, uh, I want to be the first real African champ, born, bred, trained in Africa. Did those belts ever go to Africa of the other winners? Uh, as far as I'm aware, they came to America and New Zealand. So it's all to do with nationalities and hatred. And yeah, it, it'll be a really good fight to watch because, as you say, he's clearly in Adesanya's head. And I think these people clearly despise each other and they're always the best fights. The only thing I would say on that, and again, I, you don't want to get sucked into the, the the nationalism of that, but he has a slight point, if I'm honest, in that those champions we talked about. So Izzy, African-born, trains and fights out of New Zealand and is a New Zealand citizen. Francis Ngannou, born in Cameroon, but emigrated and fights out of France. And that's where he lives and now trains. Uh, Usman, born in Nigeria, an Americanized citizen. So if you're being pedantic about his point of I'm the first, I could be the first African champion that was born there, lives there, trains there, fights there, and still is in Africa, he's not wrong. That doesn't, now that doesn't take away from the fact that the three we've just mentioned are all African. They certainly are. But if if you were being pedantic about his actual point that he's trying to make and definitely using it to get under Izzy's skin, he's not wrong. Uh, just a few other fights then, just to touch on. Bo Nickel continues his rapid ascension. He scored his second straight win inside the Octagon uh, and his fifth first-round finish overall by knocking out the late replacement Val Woodburn in just 38 seconds. Where does he go from, from here? Because... It feels as though it'd be far too early for Dana White and the UFC matchmakers to throw him up against higher calibre competition too soon, but he's clearly pushing for that. Disagree, mate. He is, if you ask me, probably the best athlete in the middleweight division. If you look at his wrestling credentials, as I say, we we went through it in in a previous podcast. He's, He's ranked like one of the top 10 wrestlers ever in collegiate wrestling, which is high the highest sort of level of, of wrestling in in America. He's clearly incredibly talented. I'll tell you who I'm talking about. Throw him to Kamaev. Him and Kamaev. Kamaev is the man with the, the, the takedowns and always goes on about running his mouth. And I'll tell you what, I could see, I, I wouldn't, I would definitely fancy Nickel against, fancy his chances. I wouldn't necessarily say he might win. That is a fight I would love to see. I'm not sure the UFC will do it because I think they want to build him a little bit more. And the problem is with Bo, he doesn't have that star power. He's not great on the mic. He's not a a Connor-esque personality. He's quite reserved. So in some ways, building him to be that star, the only way you're going to build him is by letting him smash people. He's not going to talk his way at Connor-esque, you know, or a Paddy who's got that personality out of the cage. I throw him to Kamayev, mate. And I, that is a grappling fight. You've got two of the best grapplers. Bang. Who doesn't want to see that fight? Not that I don't agree, but it's not always the best fights that get made. It's to do with building up, I think. And this is why I don't think they'll put that in. Because if you put Nickel against Kamayev, you halt in the hype train of one of those two people at an earlier stage than you, you don't really need to do. You could put Nickel against some lower, you could put Kimaev against someone lower in the middleweight. And I think, to be fair, 
the, the last interview with Dana White about Kimaev back in March time, saying that he's going to be in his next fight's going to be in middleweight, but it's going he's to be fighting, three he's guys. supposed to be fighting Usman. Usman's yeah, supposed to be going yeah. up to fight to fight him, and of course Usman has got some very good wrestling credentials. He's not an easy man to take down, but I'll be honest with you, he he feels an incredibly diminished fighter from the dominant force he was. The two losses to to our boy Leon have massively affected um, Usman, if you ask me. And I'll be honest with you, I think Kamaya would smash Usman, uh, if I'm being honest. Whereas I think Nickel would be a far more competitive fight because of the grappling. So I, I agree with you, but that you put that fight together now, that's a star maker. It, it does detrain de- 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 the hype of one of them, but the winner of that is going to suddenly, it, it, it's going to be blasting off into the stratosphere. I think they'd be idiotic to do it because you could still, if he goes and beats Usman, Kimaev, I know we're going on a bit of a tangent here as we like to do, but he goes and beats Usman, he continues his ascent, he's looking very, very strong, and then there's title implications a little bit further down the line. You've got Bo Nickel, let's put him against someone who's in the top 10, let's put him against someone who's in, you know, next in the top five, and then potentially Kimaev in three, four events down the line. So, I get what you're saying, and I understand entirely that as fans, we want to see the best fights, don't we? But it's a money-making business, and unfortunately, we don't always get what we want. Yeah, as I say, I don't disagree. The business sense makes sense, but I think sometimes you need to... Nickel is a, if you ask me, one-in-a-generation talent in terms of his wrestling skills and his athleticism. Normally, I would totally agree with you if it was someone else that didn't quite have the ability and the physicality and the athleticism that he has, I feel he's ready already. Uh, I think every He might be, though, but I, I, what I'm saying is I wouldn't get rid of Kimaev's hype train in doing so. I'd put him against one of the top ones, but just not against someone who is also on the ascent at the same time. Yeah, just to argue your point, though, let's say Kamaya fights Usman and smashes him. Does that put him up that stratosphere when he smashes a fading welterweight at middleweight so a guy who's gone up who's not looked great in his last two fights it's a name it's a big name victory but does that really blast him up the stratosphere well no but then he's got the chance to go and fight you know your Vittoris your Whitakers, uh Delitz that sort of thing while Nickel can also fight someone along the same line without affecting one another's ascent and then have them fight in the future if, if they win the next three fights, and one of them ends up fighting, uh, you know, Adesanya, Duplicis, whoever has the title at that point in time, they might come to blows for a title opportunity. But as you've got two people who are doing very, very well, why? I, I don't see the logic in derailing one of them to continue one of their ascent when you can easily continue both of them. Okay, I got, I got it for you now. I've just brought it up now just because I'm interested in this is a good discussion we've got going on here then. So I've just brought up the top 10 middleweights. Yeah. So if you're looking at Bo Nickel next, number, uh, sorry, top 15. So 15, Chris Curtis, going to smash him. No point there. Andre Munez, number 14. Forget that. He's going to smash him. 13, uh, Nasruddin uh, Imalov. Um, Imamov. Number 12, Gastelum. Now that would be an all right fight. Big name for, for, for Bo Nickel. That could be a shout. That could that That could possibly happen. Number 11, Brendan Allen. Number 10, uh, Hermanson. 
Number nine, Roman Delitz. Now, that would be a shout. Someone higher up the rankings that you could maybe build on for Bo Nickel. Brunson, number eight, wouldn't not be would not be a bad shout to, to put Bo Nickel to. Then you start getting into the bigger boys. Number seven is Paolo Costa. Number six is Sean Strickland. Five, Vittori. Four, uh, Cannoneer. Three, Whitaker. Two, Pereira. Duplicit is number one. Adesanya is a champ. Where, who, where, what, where, where on that fifteen then would you be slotting Nickel in in order as the next? If you're saying about building him, what sort of number of the fifteen are you suggesting that he should go in at? I think Gastelum would be a good fight for him. You say he was number twelve, won't he? Um, that's still, I think, a, a definite improvement on the recent competition that he's had. If you want to see him against Delitz, that'd be quite an interesting fight. I'd certainly watch that, and that's breaking into the top 10 then. Um, but there are so many different people. Costa, you could see him against. Vittori, that'd be a, a very, very difficult fight for him. But if he's as good as people are hyping up to be, then I'd happy to see that. I just think that there are, from a business sense, and this is, I'm saddened that I'm talking from a business sense rather than from a fan point of view, but from a business sense, there are far more reasonable fights to continue his ascent and do it over a longer period of time than just saying, right, give him one of the big boys. If he loses that, he's going to drop down a little bit, and then we have to start again. And the same for Kamayev, who is also going through the different individuals that he's taking on. He's improving. He's getting better. He's choosing better competition. You could have both of these people rising consistently to the point where they might end up meeting for the title in the future, if that's how it happens. But I just don't see the real benefit of having these two fighters, in the same way that you've said, if Kamayev goes and beats Fadin Usman in a higher division, is that really going to propel him? It is, in the sense that he's beaten still a very good fight, and, and Usman has had a fantastic career up until this point, other than the, the recent two defeats. But there's just no real logic in putting Kamayev against Nickel, is the argument that I'm making. Yeah, and as I say, I, nine times out of ten, I would agree with you. I just feel that the talent and the generation and the hype behind Nickel, I think he's ready to be start be thrown to the wolves and let let's sink or swim. All right, put him, against, as as put him against someone big though. But why why does he have to fight Kimaev? Is that what I'm saying? Is what I'm saying? Put him against uh, one of the top Kimaev players. seems to be thought of as the boogeyman in terms of his wrestling because he just flies at people and takes people down. The one person that he's not in any way going to be able to do that to is Bo Nickel. So you're looking at someone that you know saying, "All right, boogeyman." Put, in, put you against someone who you're not going to be able to do what you do to everybody else. Now let's see how, you, see how it pans out. And obviously, um, Nichols' striking game is evolving. He's well known for his, his wrestling in terms of as well. I just feel that that would be a, one of them is going to come out of that shining. But I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think the, the UFC will go with what you're suggesting over mine. I'm just saying, if it was me when you've got what feels like two genuine generational talents like that, let's fucking stick them together. But that could happen two years down the line equally when they've got a few more wins under their belt. So I I see both sides of it. So before I end up knocking you out, uh, special mention to (laughs) Robbie Lawler. Um, It's not very often that we see fighters leaving the business, um, not falling on the sword and, Obviously, a very lengthy career ends it on a winning note, and what, 38 seconds, I think, of the first round. It was the the knockout. Um, he got his honorary 
video with a highlight reel at the end, uh, brought him to tears, former welterweight champion. It was all very surreal, all very, very nice moment. And obviously, um, probably the best way to go off into the sunset after a 22-year career. I'm not going to lie, mate. That shit made me emotional, man. I didn't cry, but I was like, that's some emotional shit. And I, that was real respect from the UFC to do that. They don't often do that. I love to see it when you get a genuine legend of the sport and a real old school warrior that, I mean, again, sadly, Robbie Lawler will probably feel the effects of his fighting style later in life. That man went to war every time. You know, he, again, I'm no doctor, so don't quote me on this, but would not be surprised if he's got CTE and will have brain damage later down the line because of the way he fought. But it's so nice to see someone like that ride off into the sunset with a massive KO as opposed to what's happened more recently. I think the last three or four fighters that have come out prior to the fight and said, I'm retiring, this is my last fight, hasn't gone well from uh, Frankie Edgar being the one that sticks in my mind, brought his family there, all that, and then gets laid out. So I thought it was a really, really nice moment. Massive respect to the UFC for the the, the highlights they gave him in the send-off and went out as he started as a fucking knockout artist and will undoubtedly be inducted into the hall of fame. Yeah. And uh, good luck to ruthless with whatever he does next in his career. Uh, Final bit of the MMA section. Then did you happen to catch tough episode seven? I'm afraid I didn't on this one. So at a busy week at work with some, some of us taking fucking day and a half off. So having to do two people's jobs. So um, I didn't get a chance to see it this week. I saw very briefly a quick clip, clip on Twitter that totally spoiled it, that uh, it's now 7-0 to Chandler and a clean sweep is on. But I understand you have watched it. So um, give me the rundown. Uh, you missed absolutely nothing as per usual with this series. I think for the last four or five episodes, it's just been completely predictable and completely nonsense. So it was Jason Knight of uh, Team Chandler and he submitted, uh, I think his name is Landon Quinones uh, in the first round, Quinones. Jason Knight's a real veteran though. He, again, it, it was I, good, I, yeah. I, he has been around a long time. He'd been in the UFC. He's probably been in the UFC at least a couple of times. Name is very familiar. Um, but clean sweep seems on and, and very likely to happen at this rate. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a triangle choke as well. It would really, really quickly. He goes for the takedown. Um, I won't do your play-by-play because I'm nowhere near as good as it as you are. But, um, yeah, he went for the takedown, did uh, Quinoes, and just made a complete mess of it. And then Knight just <laughs> puts him in a triangle choke and chokes him out. Um, McGregor basically went up to Dana White afterwards, which is a real sign of confidence in the, the final fight, saying, what happens if I fall to a 8 and 0 clean sweep before <laughs> the next stage and uh, Dana White had essentially turned around and said that they might ask some of Chandler's team members if they would like to transfer to McGregor's group now I'm not sure how well that's going to go um, obviously hey do you want to transfer to a t- <laughs> that's, that is, isn't that like being in a football match and being eight nil down and then the referee going look this is so unfair lads look do you want to swap a couple of players over that feels like what we used to do at fucking five aside. One team's getting battered at half time, saying that we need to switch the teams around here because this is so unfair. I mean, that's that's crazy. That yeah, it's like, uh, I'll I'll stay on this side. Thank you. Um, yeah. McGregor had, as well, apparently 
been penciled in, and these are the rumours, penciled in to face Chandler on 296, which is December 16th in Las Vegas, which I think we discussed before. Um, that date had obviously been up in the air because of McGregor's current drug testing status, which we've, again, previously covered. Um, weirdly, someone asked him on Twitter this week about whether there will be a delay in the comeback fight, whether we're now expecting him to see him in 2024 against Chandler. He did reply, and he simply put December with a little emoji of a Santa Claus, and then it's been deleted since. I'm not sure why he's done that. The implication would be that that fight is still set for December 16th in Las Vegas, but I don't know. I I still feel like we might just never see this fight, and we might never see McGregor fight again. Um, with everything Disagree. that's going on with him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in on you there. I, I agree 100% it might not happen. The point I would make, 296 to me, is pushing it for 300. We know what the UFC do with the Centennial cards. I will 100% tell you now, Connor is going to be on UFC 300 because they will go big for the, for the biggest pay-per-view ever. If he was on 296 and let's say it was a war and whether he won or lost against Chandler, but got fucked up, that could put him out of 300. So the closer it goes toward the numbered events towards 300, the less likely in my eyes it's going to happen, because I can't help but feel if you're Dana, you're keeping Connor and John Jones are, if you ask me, 100% guaranteed to be on 300. So do you think that they will delay the Chandler McGregor fight up until 300? Or... Possibly. If it got to 296, and I don't know when 296 is and when they're proposing the 300, I've got to be honest, they haven't announced 300 when that is, how far that is in the future. But it would not, if it gets to that level, it wouldn't surprise me if they put it off to 300 because they do go big on the centennial events. They love to do that. That, I mean, you talk about stacked cards, that, that, I mean, that could off, that could have like, three or four title fights on 300. And I can't help but feel if it's 300, sorry, 296, that's too close to 300 to risk McGregor from the UFC's point of view. Uh, I'm obviously, I think, what number is Jones um, Stipe uh, confirmed for? Is that 293? Uh, 295, I think it was. So I think, and again, probably the way that that's going to go, which Jones will just run through him, that's probably enough recovery time. But I would be, I could be wrong, clearly, but I would be shocked. They are, I think we can both probably agree, the UFC's two biggest stars, Bar Volk, um, and they will be, I think, on 300, John Jones and Connor, that is. I think think they'll be on on the undercard. So I could see McGregor Chandler on the undercard, and I can see Jones Pavlovich on the undercard, but... There's only one real fight in the headline uh, UFC 300. Go on. It's, uh, it's got to be Zuckerberg and Musk, hasn't it? <laughs> i tell you what I'm going to call it as. This is, i tell you, this is what I, I could see. And this is me going off of my little mind, mindset here. I'm going to call it for you, which I could see. Blahovic, um, Pereira for the interim in the fight we've already discussed a little bit earlier, 300, it, let's say Pereira wins, Izzy moves up to fight Pereira for the light heavyweight title. That would be my prediction. There are so many variables in that 
Izzy's not but, even going to get past um, Duplicis. So. A lot of variables, but I'm calling it now. If it lines up, that would not surprise me. Premier League's greatest goalkeeper of all time is uh, leaving what Manchester United. What the fuck United are you after... talking about? <laughs> Alisson is going nowhere. What the fuck are you talking about? Uh, De Gea is leaving Manchester United after 12 years. Um, not really a surprise to anyone. He has completely gone off the boil for a number of years now. He's made some serious, silly errors. He's... Letting some stupid goals, his distribution's nowhere near as good as it used to be. And it seems like um, Man United are closing in on Onana as well at Inter, which is a significant upgrade for me. You don't want to do your little joke or your little sing of his, his name? Onana. Again, you know, the, the, the great joke that you came up with last time. But um, <laughs> interestingly, the, the one thing for me, I mean, it, 12 years he, he, he's been at United. He has undoubtedly fallen off the last few years, and I think that's a little bit sad to see. What I would say is he won at his peak. He was incredible and saved United on so many occasions. How often do you get in 12 years a goalkeeper winning player of the year for the team four times? So a third of the time he was there, he won player of the year. So as much as it's definitely diminished and he's going to, the last couple of years, he, he's waned and he's not going to be as great. He has to be up there with Manu's best ever keepers in terms of Schmeichel and, uh, and Van der Sar. Oh, undoubtedly. Absolutely undoubtedly. He's um, certainly, as I say, gone off the boil in recent years and he's certainly not been up to the previous standards that he's set. But even as a Leeds United fan, I've got to appreciate that he was one of the best Premier League goalkeepers of his, his era. Um, certainly not the best anymore and certainly nowhere near the standards of someone like Alisson, Edison. But I think he will go down as... A... Club legend is bandied about too easily these days, so I won't say that, but he'll certainly be held in high regard by, I would hope, by Manchester United fans. One thing I do remember, and I might be talking out my arse here and I might be proved wrong, but if I, if I, if I remember back to when we did our little discussion about keepers before and I was compelling you with my arguments and stats that Alisson is the best keeper of uh, in the world. If I'm not mistaken, I think, and again, I'm thinking this purely based on the figures, I think De Gea actually has more appearances for Man U than Schmeichel and Van der Sar put together. Couldn't tell you. Uh, and if I could have told you that off by heart, I would have been disappointed in myself. But I wouldn't be surprised. It is, 12 years is a long period of time and he has been their number one for the majority of that time. So in that case, I've managed to quickly refine my notes here. Schmeichel played 310 games for United. Van der Sar played... Anticipation's killing me. 313. So no, he's not, but he's not far off because I think he had something like 558. So he's not a million miles off. He Slightly less, 50, 60 odd games less, but as many games as both of them two put together, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. Ashley Young is having a medical at Everton, having left Aston Villa. Seems like Aston Villa are getting rid of their deadwood and going significantly for better players. Everton are doing what many people are expected, 
and seemingly picking up the Deadwood because there's no one else that wants to go to that club at this moment in time. I fear for Everton next season. I tell you, I, I, on the flip side of that, fucking Villa. I mean, we, we, we've, we've talked enough times and waxed lyrically about what uh, Emery has done there since he's been there. I see recently they've been linked with uh, Moussa Diaby of Leverkusen, very good yeah. player, and he's been linked with some some higher level teams. They're going to be real, a really, really strong team, I think, next year. And I wouldn't quite say maybe pushing for the Champions League, but top six easily for me. That that they they could be that kind of Brighton. It's probably not a surprise package like that, but Villa are going to be no joke next season. I think even more so than Brighton, because there'll be an expectation. The money that they're spending and the players that they're bringing in, Brighton did it from a position where not, again, without being disrespectful and, and all due respect to Brighton, no one expects someone of Brighton's level to get to the position they were. The managerial style that they've implemented, we talked about deserve before you were brought in, but not many people were speaking about him from a, a popular stance. Not many people were saying, right, I really want deserve coming in. The transfers that they've made previously, like McAllister, no one was really going for McAllister before Brighton um, went after him. And now you look what he's become. And obviously he's with you at this point in time. So I think the expectation is significantly higher on Villa with people like Pau Torres. If they go and get Diaby, they've got a very good team, very good manager, and he's been back significantly. They should be getting Europe next season. Easily, as I say, I think they'll be a, a very decent team and a force to be reckoned with. Um, I'm, you know, if I was a Villa, it's a exciting time to be a Villa fan. I would say for sure. Is it an exciting time to be a Liverpool fan, considering you're on the verge of selling your entire midfield? I mean, I'm in two minds here. So, I mean, we've we've got the Saudis coming in and starting to go from our deep dive and what they're trying to do to completely ruining football and just fucking throwing money around and wrecking teams. But as much as our midfield clearly needed a refresh and I was very, very happy with McAllister and Slobazai as uh, sign-ins, I'm, I'm really happy. We've got, as I understand it, Henderson has agreed personal terms with the team that Gerard is going to manage. Don't think a fee or a deal has been agreed officially with Liverpool yet, so that's not to happen, but it's in the region of 20 mil. Um, he's been a great servant for Liverpool over the years, but I've never been his biggest fan. So I wouldn't, on the face of it, be that disappointed for Henderson to go. The one that concerns me more is that another Saudi team have offered £40 million for Fab. And as much as Fab was definitely on the decline last year and not what he was in previous years, that leaves a big hole in our midfield there. And what I read today, just as if it wasn't then to fucking fully kick. I mean, just sorry, just before I move on to that, it, it, those two players, from what, what would be rumoured, that would likely mean £60 million injection in cash to us in terms of transfer fees and would clear 350 k off our wage bill. So that that's a nice move from Liverpool on the financial side to look to then maybe get another midfielder or two in. What I read today, which then really concerned me, is that Barca are being linked with re-signing... Um, Thiago Thiago and that to me as much as Thiago's on the wane he's not going to play every game I don't think you can sell three of our midfield that would leave a massive hole for me uh, I, I think if we were doing that the obvious in my opinion move is the most likely is Lavia from Southampton and we we, we go big on him and he becomes Fab's replacement 
or Calcedo for from, from Brighton. The only other thing in my mind is, does that show a really impressive amount of faith from Klopp in uh, Bacetic to come in? He was playing very well last season before he got injured. He was playing in Fab's position at the, the, the base of the three-man midfield. But I would feel uncomfortable changing our whole midfield and go into a whole new three. So if we did, say, get Lavia, let's say, example, or Calcedo, McAllister, Lavia and Slobozai, that feels dangerous to me to have a whole new midfield in there without any continuity. So I, I would be concerned at that. And yeah, I, I, the Thiago one worries me. I think the other two we could do without if we buy a good replacement in Calcedo or Lavia. I would personally still keep Thiago for, for, for what he adds to the squad, that little bit of magic he can bring when he does come on and that creativity, which I do, as much as that's what I understand Slomazai has in, in abundance, I would be concerned. So, um, yeah, not I, I'm, we'll wait to see how it pans out because none of them are confirmed at the moment. And it wouldn't surprise me if we did let Henderson go, who's probably the more likely, if they did reject it for Fab. But I'm a bit concerned with all this, if I'm honest, as a Liverpool fan. William is close to joining Forrest on a free from Fulham. Um, is it a free from Fulham or is it just end of his yeah, it's contract? Yeah, it's a free. He ran, ran, out and ran out of his contract. Yeah. So, yeah, ran out of contract. And I understand they want looking to replace him with Callum Hudson-Odoi from Chelsea. Uh, obviously, back, he had a rather uh, underwhelming loan spell at Leverkusen. I think it was, wasn't he? He was in Germany. Didn't play a great deal and wasn't great. Um, but there's obviously always been a lot of talent and a lot of hype about him. But Willian is really good. I also saw the name escapes me of Forrest being linked for 30 million with a really decent midfielder who I can't think the name of, um, who would be a really good signing for them. So they look like they are going all out in an effort to try and retain and build on that Premier League status. I'm trying to think off the top of my head who that is because I did see that as well. Uh, it was yeah. someone that surprised me. Who, sorry? Is it someone at PSV? Um, no, I can't remember. And it's going to be one that we're going to look like mugs now that we can't come up with it. But it was some someone that you would expect to go to a better team, to be honest with you, than Forrest. And if Forrest managed to pull that off, that would be a fantastic signing. Um, Ibrahim Sangare. That's right, from PSV. Yeah. He's been long, long linked with the Premier League. Very, very solid defensive midfielder. And a lot of better teams than Forrest have been been, been, been eyeing him up for a while. I mean, look, Chelsea were looking at him at one point last year. So that would be a real coup for them if they could get him. Well, just because you mentioned Fulham, Mitrovic has been in the news quite recently. Uh, again, as it seems to be in every one of these podcasts, there's always a, a Saudi uh, link at one point. Al-Hilal have made a second bid for him. They had a £25.5 million bid for him rejected. Previously, they made a second bid close to £30 million for him. Fulham have said no, and they've rejected the offer. Uh, they've said that he's not for sale whatsoever. Mitrovic, however, has by the sounds of it, quite publicly contacted Tony Khan and said, I want you to sell me. 
Um, I know from what I read, and I think Sky Sports had mentioned it as well, he has basically turned around to Tony Khan, so the owner of uh, Fulham, and said, I've contributed loads for the last six years at this club. I think 30 million or just shy of 30 million is, is good money for me. I want to go to this this club. Um, Al Hilal obviously will offer significantly higher wages. They've already signed Neves, Kulibale, and they're on the verge of signing uh, Milinkovic Savic from Lazio, which would be another fantastic signing. Uh, I think we'd already discussed this, but that's the spine of a team. That's a fucking great team. That's, <laughs> a, really that, that's team. a fucking decent Premier League team, that, let alone a Saudi team. I mean, you'd have to, again, um, maybe once all the signings are done and um, the, the transfer window is over, we'll, we'll do a, a further double tap and we could look at all the signings and maybe make some predictions about who would win uh, that league. But I tell you what, if, if they get him and maybe one more, five Premier League, you know, European quality, high-level players they're signing, that is a fucking team and a half they're putting together Al Halal. Um, again, because the segues work really well on this, Aaron Ramsey, despite significant interest from Saudi Arabia and apparently quite a lucrative contract offer, has rejected the move to move back to uh, the club that his career started at, Cardiff City. He has triggered a 12-month extension at Nice after playing a set number of matches for the League One team last season. But from what it sounds like, talks have been had. He's essentially said, look, I want to be back close to my family. Nice sound like they're quite happy to let him go. And Cardiff seem very, very happy to accept him. Is it a good move um, in the Championship? Now, it seems on the face that's a higher quality player for the championship, but with his injury record and such, is he just going to get snapped in half? Well, I was just about to say to you, this is a man who has a horrendous injury record, is going to be targeted because of the quality he's got. That would be dangerous, I would say. And if Cardiff are putting too much expectation or hope on him, I think that is slightly misguided. But it makes sense. I mean, it's his hometown club, but I like to see when players go back to that. One thing, just because we were on it and I, I didn't get a chance to, to say it in there, I don't know enough about this and I haven't read enough, so I, I'll probably maybe bring this up uh, and look into it for, for next week's episode. I did read a story, I don't know about this, if you saw four of the Saudi teams that are spunking all of this money, Al-Halal included and Nasser, are apparently technically under transfer bans for failure to pay wages. So how they are actually pulling off all of this transfers and what they're doing, I have no idea. And I'll probably guess it comes down to one word, money, which <laughs> is the Saudis. Yeah. I just, but I, I, I read an article and as I, said, I didn't read it in any great detail. It, as I say, it'd been a busy week. But from what I read, four of the teams that are going crazy with this spending are technically under FIFA rules, under transfer bans because they haven't paid wages to certain players and they still owe money on other transfers, which makes all of this even crazier what they're doing in terms of football. But I think that's one for, for maybe next week. And uh, I don't know enough to be able to contribute um, properly to that without, um, without, without all the facts. So I'll we'll circle back to that one next week. But I just thought that was worth a little mention from what I'd read while we were talking about Saudi. 
AJ set to fight White. We all know that. But Hooray! <laughs> the, it seems like the AJ Wilder fight is set in stone for December if he comes through that fight against White. That is a fight that we'd surely want to see. Agreed. Is that, is that it? It's just no, no other doesn't, opinion on the, it? I'll be honest, again, doesn't... I w- would I want to say it? Yeah. But it, it, it still... It's guys coming off significant losses, isn't it? Wild, Wilder has obviously been pretty much smashed by Fury to the point that any concern, you know, fear of him being the powerful puncher and, and what he was has been greatly diminished. AJ is is definitely not the feared beast that he was a few years ago. Um, I'm not really interested in, in fighting White again, and I think he probably beats White. Um, but it's definitely a fight I'd like to see because I think it's a case of AJ's weakness is he can't take a massive punch. Wilder definitely has the chance of putting AJ down. And if he lands some of the punches that he landed on Tyson, he will spark AJ out. But I get the feeling that boxing wise, AJ will be quite clever, keep his distance out. And he's clearly the better technical boxer than Wilder. And he's going to keep his distance and clinch him and just try and outbox him. So it's definitely a fight better than a lot of the the shit that they're talking about at the moment. But it's not Tyson Usyk, is it? I'd still be very excited to see it. And it would be, for me, who has backed AJ considerably throughout everything that's happened, it'd be nice to see him beat Wilder because it'd be a vindication of what I've said for a number of years in that I don't think Wilder is actually that good. I think he's got a very good power punch on him, but he isn't a boxer. He is just a scrapper. As soon as he comes up against a real boxer, like he did against Fiore, he gets absolutely dismantled. That fight, if it does happen again, it, it depends if AJ beats White and the rumours are that Ruiz Jr. is going to be fighting Wilder in the meantime. So he has to come through that and that's not an easy fight. If he does, and they both get through to that, and we've, we're set for AJ Wilder in December, it goes one of two ways. And the two ways that it can go are you look at what happened in the Ruiz Jr. fight number one, and you look what happened in the Ruiz Jr. fight number two. AJ can either come and try and scrap with him and potentially get sparked out, which is a very high possibility, or it can be clever like he was in the second uh, Ruiz Jr. fight and just box him and just stay away, don't get goaded in, easily outpoint him. Agreed. And as you say, certainly from, from some of the fights that are being talked about, it's better than the majority of stuff that's being talked about at the moment. So I'm not going to lie. I do, uh, you know, I will watch it. I'm definitely up for it, but it definitely isn't the the peak that I'm looking for of Tyson Usyk, which is still what should be happening if there was a, you know, boxing was trying to really put the best fights together that should be happening. The worst retirement, or one of the worst retirements, that should we say, um, in recent years, Lopez, uh, Teofimo, I always get his name wrong, but Teofimo Lopez, turns out he's not retired at all, um, which we... As we called it, exactly. It's got to be the shortest retirement in, I mean, is he taking a, a leaf out of Tyson Fury's book here of, but it didn't even make any sense. There was literally, no. he did it for two weeks. He didn't even vacate the title by the end. 
absolute nonsense. I mean, I don't know if he's got, without being harsh here, some, some kind of mental problems, whether he was concussed after the fight and he said something stupid when, you know, and now he's recovered. He's like, what the fuck am I talking about? Why on earth would I do that? But um, not a surprise in the slightest for me that that's happening. And nor should he retire at the peak of his powers and at the quality of fighter that he is. So um, personally, I'm pleased that he's decided to take that back and not be quite so silly. Um, but very, very short-lived in terms of retirements as they go. And he wants Devin Haney. Uh, he publicly called him out. I would like to see that fight. For sure. Now that, as you say, that, I'll be honest, that piques my interest far more than AJ Wilder. I don't disagree. I, I think the whole... I mean, the rumours were that Lopez had hung up his gloves, so to speak, due to the fact that he was extremely frustrated with how the sport was and how much he was being paid. I mean, if he goes and fights Haney, he's going to be getting quite a lot of money. So we'll see. We'll see what happens there. No, I don't disagree. But as you say, for me, that's a far more interesting fight. Uh, number one fight for me at the moment, obviously, which is happening. And we'll, we'll go into a bit close to the time. It's got to be Crawford Spence Jr. That's the one for me. That is a, an absolute barnstormer of a fight in terms of, um, you know, if that's a five o'clock in the morning job, you can fucking guarantee I'll be set getting me, uh, getting up and setting me alarm for that one. Just to end this week's then, uh, something that you called absolutely spot on in all fairness. And I think we actually called it or we discussed it last week. Fury has confirmed that his next fight, and bear in mind, let me just caveat that. This is the world heavyweight champion. His next fight is against former UFC champion who has a 0-0 boxing record, Francis Ngannou, Saudi Arabia, October 28th. And do you know what the tagline is? It's the clash to find out who the baddest man on the planet is. Which we know is John Jones for a start. <laughs> so I'm going to say yeah, that, that's, that's nonsense. Um, but... I'll be honest, I, I, I'd, I could foresee this one coming a mile away, given the dodging of Usyk that Fury was clearly doing. He clearly wants to make as much money as possible. Ngannou, because we know how he felt about the UFC and being underpaid, this is the fight for him that is going to get him tens of millions of pounds, you know, 15, 20 million pounds, I would, I would hazard a completely speculative guess you know at, at that kind of figure and from Tyson's point of view he should he it's dangerous because Ngannou does carry that frightening power and if Tyson can get put down the times he did by Wilder there's certainly a chance that Ngannou can put him down and I'll be honest with you I don't quite foresee it as being quite the walkover that most people seem to think it, and it should be when you're talking about you know, the lineal heavyweight champion of the world fighting a man with a zero and zero record. But I would not be surprised if it's closer than you think. And I certainly wouldn't be surprised if Ngannou doesn't end up putting Tyson at least down on the canvas once. I mean, we know that it's going to take place under the official rules of boxing or professional boxing. We know that there's going to be three rule, uh, three judges sat ringside and they will adopt the 10 points system. It's currently unclear how many rounds. It's currently unclear whether the fight actually counts towards any professional boxing record. So 
whether Nganu actually sparking out Fury will mean anything. What we do know is that WBC title isn't on the line. So it's an exhibition fight then, surely? Technically, and I think that's what they've been referring to it as, is an exhibition. It's kind no, of an they, exhibition, they haven't, but they not haven't an have exhibition. They, they've said that it's not an exhibition fight. I think Frank Warren came out very publicly again and said, this isn't an exhibition fight. But it is, clearly. It's just a bit of nonsense. I mean, I, I, I see why it's that, because I think you'd have a hard time convincing the WBO to allow the WBC to put the title on the line to a man with a zero and zero record. So I think the only reason that's not happening is that if you were that sanctioning body, you're like, fuck no, I'm not letting you have a, an amateur by all technical terms of boxing fight for the heavyweight title in his first fight. It's absolutely no matter, even if he is the one of the baddest man on the planet and an incredibly frightening human being, I'm not letting that happen. So um, I don't think the title will, no matter what goes on in between and, and before then the title will ever be on the line. But I'll be honest again, if I had to be, I actually be more excited about watching this one than AJ Wilder. Nah, not for me. I, I would be if the title were online. And I would say, I don't necessarily think that you're wrong about the fact that it shouldn't be allowed for someone with a quite literal 0-0 record to then have a, a world title fight in his first fight. But take the title off him then. Strip him of the title. If your world heavyweight champion feels it's acceptable to go and fight for a significant amount of money, because that's what we know that this is for. There's no beating around the bush on that. Against someone who has never fought in this sport before, either he has some re- risk attributed to it, he puts his rec- undefeated record on line, he puts his title on the line, and potentially loses both, or he has this fight, you do what you want to do, you go get whatever money you want to do, give us his title back, and we'll give it to some, a real boxer who wants to fight other real boxers. T- totally agree. And again, I mean, again, um, you could argue that there's no downside to either fighter here. Uh, Fury, let's say, worst case scenario, gets sparked out. All right, it's going to uh, definitely tarnish his legacy, but he doesn't lose his title. So he's still got that. He can still maybe look to try and then fight one of the other guys for 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 a unification. Um, Ngannou, um, you know, comes in, sparks out Tyson. His legend all of a sudden is fucking grows significantly and he puts himself immediately in with a chance of fighting probably some of the other bigger names potentially for a title because he can say, all right, it wasn't for a title, but I sparked out the WBC title holder. So it seems to me from that point of view, there's no real downside for either fighter, which is why I think it's come together and why I've said for the last few podcasts it made a lot of sense and it wouldn't surprise me at all if it happened. So I'll watch it, but I'll watch it through gritted teeth as well. So um, as always, thanks very much for listening and we'll speak to you next week.